Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. On today's edition of Ask Dr. Dawn, we'll be discussing publication bias in science and critiquing some recently published studies looking at vitamin D. We'll also be learning about human brain organoids used in research and how these can be implanted in animal brains and even on computer chips. The future is wide open, maybe a little too wide open. Let's see what you think. And of course, answers to your questions and emails. So all of that in the next hour on Ask Dr. Don. I hope you'll stay right here with me while we uh, take a little journey in the halls and politics of science. Uh, first of all, publication bias. In general, positive studies are easier to get published than negative studies. Way easier, as the person who tried to replicate several positive studies that got published in a major journal turned out not to be replicatable, uh, but trying to get that non-replication study published, well, it did get published, uh, but it's always in a lesser journal that nobody reads. So it's like that retraction when the newspaper gets it wrong, and they print the wrong thing on page one, and then the retraction's on page 31 in small print. Oh, by the way, we were wrong about that. Yeah, and of course that registers, right? Well, think about that. You know, of course, it's more exciting to be surprised. Drug X reduces disease Y seems way more important and deserving of reporting than drug X doesn't do a thing to help disease Y. Well, this is actually a problem because that pesky word significant in science, let's, let's talk about what that means. It means that 19 out of 20 times, the result was probably not due to chance. But in one out of 20 cases, it was due to chance. Well, the positive study is more likely to get published, and you can game this, right? Now, suppose other researchers read that paper and try to repeat the experiment, but in their studies, it doesn't work. They're going to have a harder time getting that negative study published, and we may be left with the wrong impression. And sometimes that's deliberate. It gets even worse when money is involved. Remember drug X and disease Y? Well, suppose the company developing drug X might be tempted to run, oh, let's say 20 or 30 studies uh, and only submit for publication the one out of 20 that had positive results that statistically probably is meaningless, but financially well, there's a lot riding on that drug getting approved, right? And there's an important exception to the positive bias rule. And that's that it's much easier to get a negative study published if the thing being tested is a natural product like vitamin D or a natural therapy like acupuncture. In this case, the bias is in favor of the negative studies, even those whose methodology is deeply unsound. So let's do a little dive into two studies published in top-line journals, New England Journal of Medicine and British Medical Journal, reporting on negative benefits from vitamin D. Maybe you'll pick up a few tricks for spotting the blarney. But I warn you, you'll have to do more than just read the abstract. 
I had prepared this, actually, and then this morning in my ceramics uh, studio, uh, one of my fellow cl- uh, classmates or studio mates said her doctor told her to immediately stop taking vitamin D. And, uh, of course, that it's bad for you. And, uh, you know, that's just not established by the science. So let's go to bad science or rather inadequate science. The first study I want to tell you about was published in July of 22. It was in the New England Journal of Medicine, which if you're a doctor, like that's the one journal that just about everybody reads. I'll put it that way. And this was a group of 26,000 older adults in the Boston area. Older means 50 and above. And in this paper, they looked at two groups, those that were given 2,000 units of supplemental vitamin D to take daily and those who were given placebo. And using surveys and medical records, they monitored the incidence of bone fracture in each participant. And after five years, the data showed no difference in fracture risk between the two groups, the placebo and the vitamin D supplements. Groups had equal chances of breaking a bone. Thus, authors concluded that vitamin D supplements were ineffective. It sounds very straightforward. People taking vitamin D supplements did not see a reduction in bone fracture risk. But given what we know about vitamin D and bone health, how does that, how can that make sense? Well, first of all, there's some problems with the endpoint. The vital study recorded bone fractures, not bone mineral density. While fracture risk is related to bone mineral density, there's other things that influence bone strength like physical activity and genetics. And Fracture risk is also influenced by how likely you are to sustain a potential bone-breaking injury, like from a fall or a motor vehicle accident. So it's only, vitamin D is only one of the factors, which makes bone fracture a, a limiting parameter because you're not looking at bone density, which is why we think bone, that it's good against fractures. Plus, and this I think is really critical, something we call the power of the study. So the participants, the 26 thousand older adults had a much lower than average bone fracture rate. The incidence of fracture in this group was about 1% per year, which is four times lower than the average for similarly aged adults in the United States. So a low rate of bone fracture means that even if there was a difference, it would probably be very difficult to detect because the designers of the study chose that number, 26,000, based on a 4.4% fracture rate, not a 1.1% fracture rate. And why was the bone fracture rate so low in that group? Well, one reason may be that this was a privileged group that had higher than average levels of vitamin D before the study even started. Nobody uh, in both of the treatment groups they did check the baseline vitamin D level, and it was the same in both groups. It was about 30, which, by the way, is about what we would want people to have. And we know that if the levels are below 20, that's when you see a fracture risk and a loss of bone density. And here's the real confound, okay? If you do a study and you have a placebo, the assumption is that the placebo is meaningful. But in this study, the, the placebo people were given a fake vitamin D supplement, but they were allowed to take their regular vitamins. And 
in many of those people, their regular vitamins included 800 units of vitamin D, which is kind of standard for a multivitamin. So 40% of the placebo group was taking vitamin D. That should have been a deal breaker for getting published at all, but it wasn't. You know, neither the control group nor the experimental group was at risk for the end point. So the study is crap, okay? It's as simple as that. It isn't set up to find a difference. In fact, if you could, you could make the argument that it was set up not to find a difference. And who knows? Uh, maybe it was. It certainly got published in New England Journal of Medicine. Question is, if it had found a difference, would it have been published as easily? Well, I, I can't say, but I have my doubts. Okay, another study. This one from September 2022. Clinical trial on COVID-19 and vitamin D. This was published in the British Medical Journal. Uh, this was supposed to look at immune function. And it was looking whether vitamin D supplementation affected the risk of developing COVID-19 or other acute respiratory infections. So three groups, right, randomly assorted. So check the box on good first step. Two of the groups were called vitamin supplement groups, but whether or not they actually got the vitamin supplements depended on their initial vitamin D concentrations. So if they were below 30, they either got 800 or 3,200. Those who were above 30 received no supplements, but they were still considered part of the supplement group. And the third group was the control group. They weren't given any supplements, but they didn't have their vitamin D level measured at the start of the study. So you don't know if their level was the same or different or even higher. And at the end of the study, they didn't measure blood in all of the uh, people. They only measured vitamin D levels in a small subset of the groups. The final analysis was, you know, how did we ascertain if they got vitamin, if they got sick? Well, instead of looking at medical records, they sent out a questionnaire. And people were asked to say whether or not they'd gotten a respiratory infection or COVID-19. So the control group knew, by the way, they didn't get a placebo pill like the first study. So they knew they were not getting vitamin D. And as a consequence, about 50% of them started taking vitamin D despite being asked not to do so. So we don't really know about initial vitamin D status in that control group. And what we do know is that a lot of them took vitamin D. So really, this study doesn't differentiate the groups. So you can't draw any conclusions. Furthermore, uh, the supplements weren't very good. Apparently, only 40% of the study participants in the 800 unit uh, reached the goal of 30 at the end of the study. And only 15% of, and, uh, of people in the 3200 unit group didn't get to 30 by the end of the six-month study. And I can tell you, uh, because I've been giving people vitamin D forever, in some people, it doesn't absorb well. It takes a long time to go from 20 to 30, like six months or sometimes even a year. And in the case of the friend who was talking to me this morning, uh, she'd been on 5,000 units for a year and her blood level hadn't gone up at all. Well, there's only two explanations for that. Either she's not absorbing it or she's overusing it because she has a medical condition 
that is inflammatory. And, and I told her what she needed to ask for test-wise. But the point is, these are both very bad studies. And every time I look at a, this doesn't work, you know, vitamin D doesn't work for this, or curcumin doesn't work for this, you know, and I go and I look at, first of all, the basic premise, did anybody ever say it did? Is that even why we think it's a good thing to take? And a lot of the times, that it's just a straw dog from the start. And then when you really get into the details, it's so easy to design a bad study and have, you know, the law of averages make it so you don't get a positive result. That doesn't mean, it's, it's not meaningful, but it always, always gets published as if it were meaningful. They get a pass on the bad technique. And we saw that a lot during the first six months of COVID. A lot of stuff got published without peer review for a reason. We were flailing. Well, we're not flailing here. The standards of peer review and the standards of study design need to be the same for supplements as they are for drugs, either as lenient or as harsh. But I don't like double standards, and I definitely don't like this one. And we're about to launch into organoids. Doesn't that sound like science fiction? Well, now I can find it in real life. We're going to start off with research that's being done as we speak uh, at Stanford University. The lead researcher is named Sergio Pasca, and he has been making what he calls cortical organoids. They're spheres, a couple millimeters across, and they're, contr- they're made of specially grown human nerve cells. And they're only you know a couple millimeters across, but they act like a brain. And so he's been using them to study nervous system physiology, neurosystem development. But he just published a paper in Nature, let's see, this was uh, in October, and they started wiring the organoids into the brains of rats. And they rigged it so that they could show that their implanted organoids were actually tapping into the rat's sensory cortex and could control the animal's behavior. On a more practical note, when they took cells from patients with a particular genetic illness and implanted cortical, the implanted cortical organoids could yield information about what was wrong with the cells of this illness. And this tells us how it's not processing properly. Now, they did this by using pluripotent stem cells. And these are created... Pluripotent stem cells, what the hell does that mean? Well, it means that these are stem cells that can turn into anything. That's what pluripotent means. We used to have an industry of stem cell research that was based on using stem cells from embryos because they were pretty easy to harvest and they were pluripotent by definition. Then you've got a ball of eight cells and any one of those eight cells can turn into an entire mouse pup. Well, you've got a pluripotent cell there. But then during the first Bush administration, there was a ban on research uh, in embryonic stem cells. It wasn't a total ban. They identified like several strains that you could use, but they weren't the good ones. And researchers were sort of stymied. So they had to go around this barrier. And as a result, it worked out great because we now can make pluripotent stem cells from you or me 
and study them to figure out what would be the best drug or regimen of treatment for our rare disease. How do we make these? It takes four steps. So we have four different gene-regulating transcription factor proteins, and we take an ordinary body cell, usually from the skin, and we apply this gene regulator one, and that turns on a certain cassette of genes, a suite of genes, if you will, and then number two, and number three, and number four. And by the end, what we've done is we've turned on all of the embryonic genes. Then that's our starting point. From there, you can give other factors and other influences and encourage these cell lines to specialize and become a particular cell type, such as cerebral cortex cells, which if handled correctly and put in the right growth medium, uh, attached to each other instead of floating around as separate cells, and influence each other and grow into these tiny little mini organs. And you can do it with brains, you can do it with uh, lung, you can do it with liver tissue. And this has become the lab rat of the future. Well, we'll still need rats, but we won't be using them quite in the same way. In this case, when the rats were three to seven days old, already born, in other words, not embryos, the brains were implanted with these organoids, these small bits of organoid cells. And I don't know how many they used, but it grew to two millimeters in the rat brain. What, Where they placed them was a structure called the somatosensory cortex. And maybe sometime in you've seen that an image of a sort of weirdly structured human kind of big nose, big hands, big genitals, big lips, and small small arms and legs. They call it the homunculus. And the sensory homunculus is basically how much brain, there's a stripe of brain that's where you feel things in your cortex, and how much of that stripe is dedicated to each of the organs is why, for example, a touch on the lips is so much, your lips are much more sensitive than, say, the middle of your back. It's literally the number of neurons in your brain that are dedicated to monitoring that area. Well, now the young rat's brains, you know, they're, what, seven days old, they're still building their brain. And so the connections form all the time, and what they were able to show was that 70% of the implants that they did lodged successfully and were growing and thriving. And when the rats were mature, the implant filled up about a third of the brain hemisphere it was lodged in. Now, they had uh, all sorts of uh, research, and I won't go into the too much of detail, except that they were able to show that, that the human organoids could sense touch to the rat's whiskers. So they would blow air on the whiskers, and because a gene had been inserted into the human organoids that allowed it to essentially light up, they could see a flash of light coming literally through the skull of the living animal when the whiskers were blown. This is uh, just amazing. And we aren't going to get into where the algal protein goes, but they were able to use this to get the rat's behavior to change. This is called operant conditioning. They used a, a stimulus 
to the cells in the organoid. And the reward was basically just to let the rat drink water. And they were able to train the rats using that as a reward to do a behavior, basically go to a blue light, because when they when the blue light was on their skull, they would get access to water. And, and so they would literally, a door would open up in the cage and they could go have a drink whenever they were thirsty. This is nuts, okay? And it really feels like old science fiction. Uh, but it also feels like ways that we might be able to really study human diseases at a level that we've not been able to do before. And in particular, we need to understand the implications of this uh, from another standpoint. So our next study on this is uh, something called the DISH brain. And this is basically a network of nerve cells that are grown on a computer chip and become capable of interacting with the outside world. So this is something that actually exists and has uh, been made. It comes from a company. It's uh, what they call a proof of concept. Companies in Australia, it's called Cortical Labs. And they basically taught the nerve cells to play Pong. Uh, now, the dish brain smaller than a little finger, and it has fewer nerve cells than a bee, grown from pluripotent stem cells, which are then seeded onto the chip. Uh, they experimented with both mice cells and human cells, worked in both. And so they set up the, ch they set up the chip so that there was a sensory input and a motor output region. So in the sensory region, eight electrodes gave the cells tiny zaps that told it where the paddle was. And they that we're, te we're teaching it to play Pong, that old video game with the bouncing cursor, effectively. Uh, the, the ball, they, they showed it essentially using the tiny zaps where the ball was, and the neurons firing in the motor region determined the movement of the paddles. And every time the neurons missed the ball, the software uh, wiped out the pattern that led to the loss, and when it didn't when it didn't miss the ball when the paddle worked the the software was not wiped out so as a result by trial and error the nerve cells first learned the rules of pong and then they learned to to play it better uh by the way the human cells learned faster than the mice cells which makes me feel a little bit better about this but we're talking about the first cyborg here, right? A human nerve, human neurons and chips literally growing together and learning something that neither of them could do on their own. Uh, or not without, in the case of the chip, you'd need to program it to do it. In this case, through feedback, the chip programmed itself using the human neural network. This is jaw-dropping, folks, and I am really... Uh, amazed to think of where things go from here. An email from Mary. Mary writes, and I'm going to abbreviate her email. Uh, she wants to know about hybrid fractional lasers and broadband light 
therapy for aging skin rejuvenation. Uh, so Mary says, I'll be 71 soon, and I've taken care of myself throughout my life, physically active, protected myself from the sun since I was 35. Uh, I'd like to keep up the appearance of my skin. I realize that this age, everything is uh, in decline, but I want to fight the good fight, including trying to look my best. If I'm going to keep up the appearance of my house and car, I'm darn sure going to try to do the same with the skin suit I'm riding around in for another decade or two. Like the way you think, Mary, and uh, let's make it decade or three, shall we, while we're at it? because uh, I think you're doing the right things. Now, Mary is interested in hybrid fractional lasers. She's been seeing a lot of promotions of those. And the idea is that it's going to boost the body's production of collagen, tighten up the skin on the surface. So her question is, do you think it's actually possible to rejuvenate collagen in a 70-year-old person to the extent it would make a difference? And what's your opinion of these treatments? And she says, well, the before and after pictures on the web look great. Yeah, oh, and I'm going to launch into my answer now. First of all, Mary, before and after pictures, yeah, you are right to be skeptical. I'm a, a photographer, a hobbyist a little bit in that area, and I can tell you light makes a huge difference, and it can be pretty obvious in the before and after pictures that the angle of the photo is different or that they're using a different lens to make the person look better. Uh, the the before picture is usually much more unflattering. Now, I did go looking for science, like you do when you're really trying to evaluate claims. And I found one paper that was published in uh, a scientific journal, legitimate dermatology journal, in which a group of people who had been doing this for a long time and had a big cohort of patients went back to their original photographs and they took Polaroids when they had started the people and they tried to always use the same angle, they said, in the same light. I, I have some misgivings about how successful they were with that. But they did put some of those pictures in their paper. And I think what they did for their science was decent. They had a 100 different people score the photos for the age that they thought the person was in the first photo and the age they thought they were in the second photo without telling them how long the person had been doing at least yearly treatments of this HFLBLT therapy. And I will tell you, this was the only study that I could find in a Google Scholar search on this stuff. And it was done by people who had definitely an interest in validating what they were actually doing and making money for doing. So consider considering that, it was at least a fairly constructed study, and they did show images. And I was kind of unimpressed with the images. But their take-home point was, we're not reversing aging. We're just stopping the decline. And if you come in and do this every year uh, or a couple times a year, your face doesn't decline as quickly. And they had one photo of a 69-year-old woman, and presumably she it was at least five years later because that was the study design. And I would have to say that allowing for differences in lighting, she didn't get any worse between 69 and let's call it 75. Uh, so it could maybe stop further deterioration, and that's their claim in their study. They're not claiming rejuvenation. 
I want to point out that when you look at those before and after pictures, if they're done right away afterwards, you can get some swelling, and swelling can definitely disguise wrinkles uh, short term. I could game this by just making sure people were dehydrated on the first photo by taking it early in the morning, and then uh, not dehydrated on the second uh, photo by having them just drink a lot of water. When you're older, you can see dehydration in your skin quite readily if you look for it. So that's a little experiment to play. If you have fine wrinkles, what we call cigarette paper, uh, you're probably going to get more benefit than if you have deep wrinkles. Those will probably those are probably not going to get much better. But you might be able to tighten up the cigarette paper kind of consistency. Don't know what you're dealing with. Uh, overall, it's probably not worth the money. You can get very similar results with cheaper and safer therapies. And if you do search for adverse effects for this particular technology, you'll find that it, it can flare rosacea, it can flare eczema. And in people who uh, have a tendency to pigmented scars, it can definitely create problems, uh, permanent pigmentation problems. So I think you can probably do better with something like very light acid peels or microdermabrasion. And collagen builders like vitamin C and copper uh, copper cream products, those stimulate collagen. The, the injury from the from the dermabrasion causes enough injury to turn on the DNA, and then you've essentially you're hyping up the DNA with lots and lots of cofactors for the enzymes that make collagen and crossing your fingers. And I'd say it works. I really would. So maybe a kinder, gentler way out there for you. Our next email comes from Jacqueline, and Jacqueline writes, two questions you could possibly address on the air. Uh, Urine has sediment. I noticed rinsing my toddler's potty. It's grainy sometimes. Not always. What's up with that? And uh, a family member has persistent foot fungus for four decades. Any herbal wonder tincture? I'll take the second one first, Jackie. I cannot tell you how many questions over the years I've gotten on foot fungus, but... uh, Believe it or not, Vicks in a sock, tea tree oil, are both fairly effective for foot fungus. Nail fungus is a different story. But with tea tree oil, you do want to dilute it a little bit, uh, or maybe you're buying a product that's already diluted in oil. But the raw tea tree oil that that's really concentrated, that can cause a rash and an irritation. So you have to be careful with that and not on broken skin. Vicks, on the other hand, you can put on broken skin. It'll sting, but it won't, you know, injure you. The crystals is a little bit longer of an answer. There's so many things that can crystallize in urine. The urine is basically full of salts of various types uh, and chemicals that can recombine with other chemicals and form a solid. And the urine's level of concentration is what determines whether you're going to get those crystals. If you live in an area with hard water, then the crystals in the water, primarily calcium, will crystallize out around the edge of the faucet and the areas that get and stay damp will develop a kind of crust. As the water dehydrates, the crystals stay there and they find each other and live happily ever after. So you can have oxalate, cysteine, calcium phosphate, aluminum, bitartrate, bilirubin, leucine, hyperic acid, tyrosine, xanthine, And there are these things called inborn errors of metabolism that 
can happen. And when we see certain, like if we see a baby with uh, like a brownish urine, we're really worried that there's a problem with that baby's ability to process certain kinds of protein. And so if it's just now and then, and it's not pigmented, it's probably oxalate, and it will be worse if the baby, if your toddler is dehydrated, uh, or if they eat a lot of spinach. And so not really anything I would get too concerned about, uh, except that it's an indication that you need to work with your toddler to drink more water, which is one of the universals with toddlers, getting them to take enough fluids, enough free fluids is always tricky. So just a a quick story here that I think is very important to put out there. Chemical hair straighteners cause cancer. A new study that came out of the National Institute of Health looked at 33,000 women in the U.S. for an average of nearly 11 years. This was a prospective study. And they, one of the questions they asked them was, do you use chemical hair straightening products at least four times a year? Uh, those who did were more than twice as likely to develop uterine cancer than those that didn't. For non-users, by the way, the absolute risk is about 1.64%. But when you look at frequent users, that risk goes up to 4%. That's one out of 25, and that's a significant Increase. Now, the researchers don't know exactly why the products are associated with cancer. They haven't identified the products, but most of the people, most researchers think it's because some of the components in these hair straighteners are endocrine disruptors. They disrupt the hormonal regulation. And by the way, rates of uterine cancer, which is the most common cancer of the female reproductive system now, used to be cervical cancer, now it's uterine, they've been rising among all women in recent years, and that's probably endocrine disruptors like plastics and certain pesticides. BPA, for example, is an endocrine disruptor. But this is really a disease that kills black women at twice the rate of white women. It's one of the largest racial disparities of any type of cancer. Of the people who used chemical straighteners, about 60% of them in this study were black. So first of all, I think we, we need to rethink our standards, and I think we need to go do some product research and find something that will do the job that isn't dangerous to a woman's life. There's a painting by Degas that I like to remind myself of. It's a woman with a frown on her face as someone's brushing her hair, and the title is translated, One Must Suffer to be Beautiful. But I wonder, do we need to suffer that much? Or wouldn't it be better to just redefine the meaning of beauty? And on the subject of emails, most of the emails that I've read tonight were sent, in fact, both of them were sent to the AskDrDawn.com site where you can go and pull down this and any other uh, previous episode going back more than a decade. And you can also uh, send us a message or write a question in the Contact Us button. If you've ever read a website post on DIM, diindolmethionine, you might think it was a universally good supplement. You'd be wrong. I had a patient come in last week 
with her supplements, and I noticed she was on it. She thought it was helpful for detox. I thought, well, that's interesting. Let me see what happens when I Google usefulness of DIM, diendolmethionine, but I just used its nickname, DIM, D-I-M. Well, first four hits. Uh, August 14th, 2020. DIM can further help reduce the risk of atherosclerosis, improve prostate health, and help guard against prostate enlargement. July 22nd, 2020, DIM supplements may safeguard against prostate enlargement and prostate cancer. In fact, it may help to combat prosthetic intraepithelial neoplasia, which is a precancerous condition. August 27, 2021, studies on DIM have shown promise for breast health, acne, and reducing PMS. There's also data to support its benefits in certain cancers. July 17th, 2021, men can greatly benefit from DIM supplements because they free up bound testosterone and optimize its performance in the body. Oh boy, that's as good as Kira is selling something to women, telling him it'll take care of wrinkles. Ah, well, it is helpful for detox and it isn't. It depends, like many things genetically, on the details. This patient has the cytochrome P450 1B1 mutation. And for her, DIM doesn't reduce her breast cancer risk. It increases it. So how can something so good for you be so bad for you? Well, it depends on whether you have this mutation in the gene. Uh, 1B1. 1 in 22 people, or a little more than 4% of the population, do have this. So the advice to take it? Well, that's going to work out well about 95% of the time. And, and this is why I preach personalized medicine, because the devil truly is in the details here. So what, what is this CYP1B1? What does it do? Well, it's part of phase one detoxification. And just to explain, this happens in the liver, it happens in the skin, it happens in the gut. Detoxification is the transformation of a biologically active compound. It could be a vitamin, it could be a hormone, it could be plastic, in this case, dioxin or the microplastics that we're all ingesting even though we don't want to be. Uh, These are all involved in phase one detoxification. And then, of course, part two, phase two detoxification. And a lot of the substances I just referred to are fat-soluble. So it's an oil and vinegar problem, right? It's fat-soluble. It doesn't mix with water. How are you going to get it out? Uh, how are you going to get it into the bloodstream and keep it in the urine? And the answer is you have to make it water-soluble to keep it in the urine so that it can't soak back through the cells that are lining the bladder. And you do that by adding a chemically reactive group onto it. That's phase one detoxification, basically putting on a jump ring or something that can chemically react with something else that will keep it in the water phase. And that's, by the way, phase two detoxification. So phase one is activate it and make it reactive. But the problem is you've made it reactive. And so if if the phase two detoxification, if the reaction process of hooking it up to the good thing is slow, or if you don't have enough of the good thing because your diet is poor, you're making a lot of reactive compound that's going to go somewhere else. In the case of 1B1, it catalyzes estrogen, 
by putting an OH group on the four position. That's not important, except that that particular location makes it so that estradiol and estrone can react with DNA and form what's called an adduct, essentially attached to DNA and stay there. And the next time that cell divides, it screws up the transcription. And now you've got a mutation. Depending on where that estrogen hooked up, that might not be an important mutation, or it might be a critical mutation that turns on a cancer gene. And you won't know. It's random. Now, the, C, the 1B1 is also involved in breaking down polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. This is the stuff in cigarette smoke. This is the stuff in burnt meat and burnt fat. And we know from research looking at breast cancer tissue that we see higher levels of 1B1. Some people even said, if you've got a lot of 1B1 in the breast tissue when you biopsy it, that's a tissue that's likely to turn into cancer. They're thinking about it as an early stage marker, in fact. But but wait, I thought 1B1 was part of detoxification. It is. It's the activation piece. And what the mutation does, ironically, because most mutations slow down the effectiveness of an enzyme, the G, the G allele mutation, where you have a cytosine that turns into a, a guanine, that makes the gene, that particular enzyme, about 300% faster. Remember I said, it's fine as long as you don't overload phase two? Well, we're at that very funny old segment from Lucille Ball where she and Ethel are trying to package candy in a candy factory and the assembly line keeps speeding up, speeding up. A fast assembly line dumps too much into the space between phase one and phase two. And this stuff is is reactive. It goes and reacts where it can. And in this case, it reacts badly, not just for breast cancer, but it's also associated with the increased susceptibility for prostate cancer, breast, and ovarian cancer. So what up? Why do we want to stimulate 1B1? Well, because if you have the normal gene, you're not going to get a 300-fold increase. You're going to get maybe a 1.5, and that's going to help you get rid of stuff faster, and it won't flood the phase 2 detoxification. So you're, it's actually going to be a benefit. But if, you've al- if you're already fast and you speed it up more, you're going to actually increase risk. So first of all, if, if you've ever done 23andMe, go download your raw data and run it through Genetics Genie's detoxification uh, decoder ring, geneticgenie.com. Genetic Genie, Detoxification, those will both turn it up in a web search. And find out if you have this mutation. And if you do, I'm going to give you some advice. First of all, minimize exposure to cigarette smoke, uh, charbroiled and barbecued meats, in particular barbecued charred meat. Okay, If you're going to have barbecue, cook the meat, try not to burn it too much, and then put the barbecue sauce on top afterwards. That's much, much less dangerous for you. Stay away from pesticides and environmental toxins. Well, that's a good advice anyway, but it's especially good advice for you because you're going to turn those pesticides and environmental toxins into something bad. Uh, And then support that phase two detoxification. What if you have the COMT mutation? We talked about that a few weeks ago. If you've got both of these, you've got 
a, a, you've got work to do because your risk of breast cancer is, and prostate cancer is just plain higher and you need to work around that. So methyl donors, which is something that the websites all over the internet say are good, 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 good. They're good unless they're not. And so you really, it is worthwhile to know your DNA and know whether you have these pitfalls. And yeah, you may find out some stuff you don't want, you'd rather not know. But would you really rather not know it? Or would you rather know it so you can take action to steer around the pothole in the road ahead, to take a different route rather than crossing a bridge that's broken? Well, I'd I'd go with the second one. And we're going to talk a little bit about things you can do to improve your detoxification in, let's see, the last five minutes of the program. So let's do that. In general, the strategy with detoxification is to really support that phase two. And all, most, much of this is going out in, going on in the liver. So your diet, what you put into your mouth influences how your liver works. It influences how a lot of your body tissues work. And there are certain things that are really good influences. You know, the old eat healthy thing. Well, it's not just about avoiding fast food and, and, you know, crap snack food. You really need to get about two to three cups of foods that support the liver. So I'm going to give you a lot, a, a long list of foods that support the liver. And this should be the majority of your diet. So here we go. Onion and garlic every day, a little bit, really good idea. Green tea, same thing. Pomegranate, one of the superfoods, and easy to find right now this time of year. There's pomegranates everywhere, and they're cheap. Uh, they're just a pain in the butt to open up and process, but you know, if you put a bowl in your lap and watch your favorite half-hour TV program, you'll have plenty of pomegranate seeds. You don't need many, a teaspoon or even a, ta- a tablespoon sprinkled on your salad. Grapefruit is really good. Uh, some There are certain drugs that you shouldn't mix with grapefruit because it's so good at stimulating detoxification that it burns through your drugs faster. So take a look at the package insert on your drugs. There's only a few that say don't eat grapefruit, but if you've got one of those, eat something else like raw cruciferous vegetables. That's your, uh, that's your kale, your broccoli, your broccoli sprouts. Those things are particularly good. Uh, Wild-caught cold-water fish, not farmed fish, and that's an important distinction because farmed fish, generally there's a runoff into the fish farms, and you get things like dioxin and pesticides, and so you end up doing yourself more harm than good if the fish that you're eating is farmed fish. Uh, Also, lentils and beans, those contain compounds that support liver detox. Uh, And there are other foods that neutralize toxins all by themselves. You know the old thing about an apple a day? Well, apples neutralize toxins. So does garlic, radishes, asparagus, nuts in general, sesame seed, sesame seed in particular, pumpkin. One of I take a diet history from my patients, and one of my patients told me that they eat a couple of tablespoons of pumpkin in their shake every day. And I thought, well, that's a really good idea. I'm not a great fan of pumpkin, but by the time it gets mixed in with all the other stuff, I'm going to give it a shot. Mustard seeds, also very good. Mustard in 
in general, but mustard seeds ground up if you are doing something where that would work. Ginger. And stay away from the GMO foods and, of course, the non-organic meats and poultry, but also the dirty dozen produce. And the, the dirty dozen, these are fruits and vegetables, and based on the frequency of pesticide use, the amount of pesticide and the type of pesticide used to grow them, you should, you should try to always buy them organic. Organic's a little more expensive, but you don't necessarily have to buy organic blueberries. Okay, I do, but I, I, I don't have to because those are not really on the Dirty Dozen list. Uh, what is on the list? Well, if you're in doubt, ask yourself, do you eat the skin? And if it's something where you eat the skin, then you, you maybe want to take the skin off, but that won't work for these Dirty Dozen. So strawberries, spinach, kale, collard beans, mustard greens, any kind of those healthy greens, they need to be organic. Nectarines, apples, grapes. Now, I just said apples are great for detox, but not if they are uh, covered with pesticide. Grapes, bell peppers and chili peppers are another one that we don't think about those being needing to be organic, but they do. Cherries, peaches, you're seeing the trend here, right? You eat the skin. Pears, celery and tomatoes. So, if you're going to if you're going to plonk down extra money for organic, those are the ones where you want to think about doing that, particularly if you find that you have detoxification snips when you check your DNA. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to askdrdon.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at, at Ask Dr. Dawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.